Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I am Dean of the Honors College at the University of Tulsa, where I'm also a professor of philosophy. In this episode, I speak one last time with Russ Hintinger, professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America, to finish out our conversation on St. Augustine's Confessions. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am back for the third time with my friend, Russ Hintinger, and we have the daunting task this morning of trying to wrap up the last three books of the Confessions. Welcome back to the podcast, Russ. Thank you. It's good to see you. I'm excited and scared about the episode today. Scared that we won't get through it all. But just super excited to finally sit down and talk with you in particular about these final three books, which are very different from the first nine books, and kind of how to understand the three books together, and then also these three books in light of the entire book called The Confessions, and then finally to revisit this question of genre, which is a question I kind of led with at the beginning of this series but I want to return to now that we're finally in a position to say something definitive about it. So how should we tackle this? I mean, we left off in the last episode with the death of Monica and kind of the end of the quote-unquote autobiographical section of the Confessions. And uh, now we're heading into book 10. So how do you want to start this, Russ? Okay, let's, let's just wind it back into book nine for a second. Sure. So before Monica dies, Augustine and Monica had this vision. Right. Sometimes it's called a vision of the one at, at the port city of Ostia. And they climbed through a method of contemplation through the lowest level of created things, to just next to, without directly seeing the uncreated. What's very interesting about that, that vision is that it's all done in the form of a conversation. It's a conversation that Monica and Augustine were having. And it was a conversation that was revealing what they were seeing or knowing as they went upward. Okay, And then there was a point at which they could say nothing more. They ran out of syllables. They were almost angelic. So when you hear the phrase, no syllables, or running out of syllables in any of Augustine's work, it's usually referring to some kind of an angelic reality, because they pray without syllables. And uh, so... That was a very perfect uh, kind of ending to the major part of the autobiographical because he's been baptized. He was the prodigal son and has come back to the house of the father in faith, not in sight. 
in faith. And so that vision in book nine with his mother uh, kind of certifies that he's on the right track. But it's also reminding him he doesn't see what the end is. He doesn't see God directly. It's all by faith and hope and charity. So book 10, this is still strictly an autobiographical book, but it's really a transition book to the non-biographical. In book 10, he interrogates his memory, memoria, which is more yeah. than just remembering. We're not talking about remembering. We're talking about a power of self-presence. So, as Augustine explains, uh, well, we can forget things about ourselves, in which case we have to remember them. We've got to put the members back together. Place, time, person. Yes, my wife is not a hat. <laughs> right. Okay, that's called remembering. But we never have to remember ourselves. That's, that's, that's why you can have even, you know, these extreme cases of amnesia. But you don't forget yourself. You still have a power of self-presence. People have to come and help you remember individual things. So Augustine understands by memory, not remembering, it's the power underneath or all around remembering. And it's the best place for him to start, given his philosophical and theological commitments, which are at this point much more platonic, neoplatonic, than, than they will become later. But at this point, neoplatonic, he wants to interrogate memory and see what it is, because the clue is that it's the closest thing he can find to in the beginning, the first words of the Bible. In the beginning. So what's there in the beginning? Well, not the fact that he was born on a certain day in Fagast in North Africa. That was not even his own in the beginning. What's, what's absolutely first and what's relatively first? He goes for the relatively first, his own consciousness, his own being. Okay. And tries to see if he can get down into it for a starting place for basically a, a metaphysical disquisition. And he gets down and down and down. Halfway through book 10, he figures out he can't recollect everything down there. In other words, there is, he is a creature and that he can't see what was before his own memoria. If you want to say before, because whatever was before his memoria wasn't before in time. And that's what he wants to get to in the beginning, the thing that has no beginning. He can't get there through his, through his memory. It's, there is memory, and its beginning is like death to the living. There's, there's a wall. You can't get past it. Right. So let me just interject with a question, because I've always struggled to understand exactly what St. Augustine is saying about memory. 
And I think part of that struggle is that I have this natural inclination as a scholar, as a philosopher, when I'm reading a text, to always be trying to place it in relation to the other texts that I know, right? And I don't really know how to place Augustine on memory compared to, I guess, rival conceptions of what we might just call philosophical anthropology, just kind of account of the capacities of the human soul. Because if I think about a capacity for, I think you called it a power of self-presence, I guess I would be most inclined comparatively speaking, to put that, I mean, in in a modern context, I think we would call that the capacity for self-consciousness or maybe self-knowledge. We wouldn't necessarily call that its own capacity. We would just say something like rational capacities are self-conscious capacities Or um, it's a feature of rational capacities that they're related to self-knowledge. That we don't just exercise these capacities, but we are aware of ourselves as exercising these capacities. And nobody now would call that memory, right? And, and 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 there doesn't, and when I think about what an analog, and for example, even Aristotle, might be. I don't know what it is. And so I guess I just want to press just a little bit for my own sake. When you say that memory is a power of self-presence, but it's not remembering, is there a separate power of remembering? Or is it just that remembering is a part of this power of memory, but it's not, it's a central act or something? And, and, and what is this power, like, what is its nearby analog in other ancient thinkers? Well, see, here is the problem. You've raised the big problem. I'm not sure we should be reading Augustine as having a faculty psychology. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, maybe that's where I'm going no, wrong. Listen, listen, well, if, if it's we, not a faculty psychology, then what do we mean by power? Well, well yeah, good question. This definitely has Neoplatonic aspects to it. And by the way, when I say memoria, we have to mention two other ones because they don't exist apart from each other, whatever they are. I don't think they're faculties. Remembering might be, though. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the two other ones in, in the Augustinian triad, which he maintains to the end of his career it's crucial to his discussion in De Trinitate. Mm-hmm. It's memoria, which represents the father in the beginning. Mm-hmm. It is attentio, attention. Just uh, And he uses the term pry ends, to stand in front of being and salute. Okay. Yeah, I it love represents that. represents the son. Mm-hmm. And expectatio, which represents at least the economical Holy Spirit, that is a stretching forth for a work to do something. 
and it's all three. But he goes he goes in at book ten into Memoria, and he's a good enough Platonist to know kind of to begin there, because it's the question that he wants to answer: What was happening in the beginning, which is actually before beginnings? Okay, so he goes for Memoria, and so he's he is using an anthropological platform himself to try to understand the very first words of Scripture. Now, he's not going to get there until Book 13. This is all a warm-up to Book 13. Okay. He's going to write Book 13 four more times in his career. Okay. <laughs> he keeps on working on that yeah. particular in the beginning. Yeah. So what he knows now is that memoria is correlated with being something that is primeval, and attentio is formed is, is to be correlated with something like a concept right now, to draw it into view and know it, and expectatio with leaning somehow leaning forward. And this is correlated with faith, charity, and hope. Mm. Okay. He's already made that correlation along the way. And it's also correlated with the triplex sin. So pride is correlated with memoria, lust with attentio, and curiositas with future. These things line up pretty pretty nice, like past, present, and future. And so Well, so sorry, expectatio is clearly hope. Is memory faith? Memoria is corrected by faith because okay. it corrects pride. Okay. So attentio is faith properly understood. Gotcha. Yeah, because faith properly understood is not just to believe something or even to believe God, it's to believe unto God. It's faith that works by charity. That's what, that's what curbs and heals pride for Augustine. So when, when he goes into what looks like some major exegetical modes and almost metaphysical modes of thought here, what he... He has moral things in mind as well. But the main prize, if he can just say something true about in the beginning, that's what he's aiming for. It's, it's going to take him three and a half books to do it. And he only, he only gives up on his self-interrogation of memory at chapter 27 of book 10. That's when he kind of says, it's beyond me. I can't get there <laughs> through my own through my own power. Yeah. My own yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which is why he needs grace, right? Yes. If he's and he gonna... needs to be, and he needs to be taught. In other words, this kind of homespun learning, just learning from your own intuitions and experience, needs something higher than itself. And he needs the written word of God. He needs the word of God to tell him what was happening in the beginning and what it means. And so when he moves into book 11, uh, now it's going to be 
in way more God teaching him in the beginning. But he has a metaphysical problem, which is time. Right, right. He's not sure whether it's a metaphysical problem, a psychological problem, or a moral problem. And once again, I don't think Augustine's view on time should be reduced to any one of those options. But he knows this much. If there was something before the beginning, temporal beginning, it cannot have been a creature. Right. He's figured that out is a basic axiom for proceeding. Right. Then he has to understand that whatever it is was not itself created, and therefore the very beginning has to be ex nihilo. He understands that much. So he goes to time, and he has a classic A-series view of time, mm-hmm. you know, from McTaggart. Right, 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 right. McTaggart's treatise on that in 1908. Mm-hmm. And, and A-series view of time is that being successively acquired the properties of being future, present, and then past. Mm-hmm. That is temporal becoming. And, and this kind of change of successively acquiring the tensed properties of future, present, and then past is what McTaggart calls A-series. Okay. That's in contrast to B-series, which is that the only temporal facts are non-tensed. Uh, I call it tick-tock. That's not his term for tick-tock. Tick-tock. Before, right. after. Before, after. Before, after. And the problem with that, it's not telling you what is temporal. In fact, it's only counting itself. It's not counting time. Right. So I don't care how many tick-tocks before and afters you have. You've just measured before and afters. You haven't measured time. So Augustine is a kind of an A-series guy. But he doesn't believe it's only the mind doing this. It's, it's, it's not just the mind that's aware of every present moment crumbling into the past. Because he actually asks the question, if every present moment is crumbling into the past, why is there any time at all? In other words, it's over before you've, you found it. Right. Okay. It's a paradox of some kind. Some people allege that Augustine says, and therefore time is only psychological. It, it only has any breath, breath in our minds. Out in reality, it's over before you know it. Mm-hmm. But or it's okay. just not, or it's just a mistake to place it in, you know, kind of Kant's view. It's just a form of intuition. Like it's just the way that we have to experience things but it's not real. Yeah. Well, the cousin wants to say it's real because he needs that for in the beginning. Well, okay, that's interesting. So as I understand, one thing that he's trying to say in Book 11 is that time is created. Like, you know, before creation, there was no time, right? And time sort of, is part of creation. Right. 
Well, actually, the first time is the first motion of the bad angels. You mean the fall? Well, yeah. So the the angels are created in themselves. They're kind of like Cartesian cogitos without bodies, mm -hmm. right? And they're capable of surveying their own powers and excellence. And they must immediately turn to the light or remain in themselves. Right. And that first motion of the good angels is not a temporally exposed before and after. It's, it's something else. <laughs> they become, they instantly give themselves back to God. Hmm. Okay. The bad angels remain in themselves and prefer their own excellence. And thus begins the problem of time. What we could say the moral problem of time. Uh, a time that seems dissevered. From from first being. So yeah, that's pretty much his theory. I mean, I think his discussion in the City of God, books eleven and twelve are pretty good on this. Mm. So the time is the first motion, mm -hmm. but the motion of the good angels is like instantaneous. Right. So there's no lapse. Right. So anyway, and he, he has a few things to say about that in, in Book 13, as well as the Confessions. But that's not his best exploration of the topic, Book 13 of the Confessions. So the, Augustine does not believe that the hexameron, or that the six days of creation, was strung out over time even. So what, what's the concept of day, then, if it's not temporal? Well, that's why he says the sun doesn't appear until the fourth one. So we're, we're not talking about days. Right. It's, it's a manner of speaking to make a theological truth accessible to minds as simple as ours. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we don't begin to get a true alternation right, until the fourth, and then, even then, what was there without time, which would be seminal reasons for Augustine, are just being played out. Mm. But the entire being of the six days is already there in one act of creation. It's not strung out. It's not like, you know, building a car in Detroit. Right, so... So if it's not an unfolding through time in the way that we would think of just an ordinary process of something with a beginning, a middle, and end, but is just creation, it still, still seems central to his account that it be carved into quote-unquote days. Well, he has to interpret those days as something other than days. Right. So what are they? Created being, both, to, to use an Aristotelian category, both in act and in potency. Okay. Right. Although the potencies can play out further. What he's most interested here in the confessions is he wants to know what his father's house is. 
right. that's been a constant theme through the book. That means he has to know what was there before in the beginning. Okay. That's what he wants to know. He, he wants to know God. He doesn't want to know right here just the, he doesn't want to know history in this discussion. He How wants much, to know history in other discussions, but mm -hmm. not right here. How much does Augustine think that he can know about God through reason rather than through revelation or the mediation of scripture? Because I think just reading the confessions, it wouldn't be strange to come away with the impression that, you know, he thinks whatever you might know, it would be through scripture. Well, he turns to scripture after book 10 because he's convinced himself through reasoning about it that he's not going to get to the bottom of it. Right. Okay. So he has a very interesting line. Now, I'm, I'm in book 11 now. Yeah. Chapter 12, which begins this way. And now I have my answer to the man who says, what was God doing before he made heaven and earth? Someone once evading the force of this question is said to have made the jesting reply, God was making hells for people who look too deeply into things. This is not my answer. To make a joke about something does not mean that one understands the subject. No, that is not my answer. I would rather say, I don't know, when I don't know, than to make that kind of reply which brings ridicule on someone who has asked a deep question. But I say that you, our God, are the creator of every creature, and if by heaven and earth we mean every creature, I boldly declare that. Now, this takes considerable reasoning to summarize the whole thing in the next sentence. He's very sharp. He says, I boldly declare, before God made heaven and earth, he did not make anything. For if he did, it would have been nothing else except a creature. And I wish I knew all those good and useful things which I want to know as clearly as I know this, that before there was any creature in existence, there was no creature in existence. So he, he, he's using both inspiration of Scripture and, how to put it, his, his, as many rational tools as he can use here mm -hmm. to get to something that's absolutely fundamental before there was no creature. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I kind of come away with the sense that he's trying to make a a very sharp distinction between God and creatures and between eternity and creation. And we do have evidence of kinds of beings who, who have creaturely modes of existence, and this is how he raises the problem of time. So, in two chapters later, in Book 11, 11.14, he says, What in what sense can we say that these two times, the past and the future, exist when the past no longer is and the future is not yet? Yet, if the present were always present and did not go 
into the past, it would not be time at all, but eternity. If, therefore, the present, if it is to be time at all, only comes into existence because it is in transition toward the past, how can we say that it's even present? But the cause of its being is that it shall cease to be, so that it appears that we cannot truly say that time exists, except in the sense it is tending toward non-existence. Right, and what does that mean? Creatures are not the house of the Father. Right, sure. I think that's what he's driving at here, you know. Yeah. He's trying to understand, now that he's baptized and he lives by faith, he's trying to understand what his end is. Right. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, you talked about the moral dimension of time and the problem of time. And one thing that kind of struck me rereading this is Augustine seems to claim that one reason why we need God is because in absence of that, we're never going to find order and form and stability in time. Is that, I mean, is that, is, is, <laughs> right, is there a moral dimension to that? And is that true for all creatures, not just us? Well, time, time is not a, an absence of measure, form, and order. Mm-hmm. And the example he gives is saying the Psalms. Right. So as you're reciting the Psalms, you are remembering the last syllables that you have just chanted. You are anticipating uh, the next stanza, and you keep going because you know that on the other side of it, that is the end, you have more meaning than you do at the beginning. Right. So it's not an absence of measure, form, and order, but it's not divine. Well, what is the divine adding? He calls it Sabbath rest. Or nunkstans, that which doesn't flux. But but things things in time are not are not bereft of measure, form, and order. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Like he I notes, I don't oh no, I do. Here we go. This is so I'm I'm now looking at the last chapter of book eleven. So He's talking now about how the storms of incoherent events tear to pieces my thoughts, the inmost entrails of my soul, until that day when, purified and molten by the fire of your love, I flow together to merge with you. Then I shall find stability and solidity in you, in your truth, which imparts form to me. I shall not have to endure the questions of people who suffer from a disease which brings its own punishment and want to drink more than they have the capacity to hold. And then he goes on to say, really, I think the the final chapter here is to mark a contrast between the human mind and the divine mind. So he says, certainly if there were a mind endowed with such great knowledge and 
impressions that all things past and future could be known in the way I know a very familiar psalm. This mind would be utterly miraculous and amazing to the point of inducing awe. From such a mind, nothing of the past would be hidden, nor anything of what remaining ages have in store. Just as I have full knowledge of that psalm, I sing. And then he goes on to talk about the need for confession again. And so I, I kind of, I mean, I was really struck by these last two chapters and bringing it back into that act of confession and was kind of just wondering, or maybe I'll just put this in the form of a question, like, again, what, you know, all of this meditation on time and all of its different dimensions and how it relates to creation and memory, how is it enfolded into this broader act of confessing? Right. To confess is to receive something from another and to give it back in words of praise. And to do so, well, I should say, in truthful words of praise. That, that would be the full definition of to confess for Augustine. But it, it contains elements of quite temporal notions of confess. So, you know, the criminal is, you know, <laughs> is, is in the room and the police are saying, okay, it's time for you to confess. That is to respond by saying something true. Although Augustine's notion of confession is much broader and theological. Mm -hmm. So if you, you'll note that at the end of, of Book 13, when he's given this somewhat quick understanding of Genesis 1, it, its literal meanings, its allegorical meanings, its moral meanings, and its anagogical meanings. By the way, he has much longer treatments of all of this. He has 30 more years to go, mm -hmm. okay, as a bishop and a scholar, 30 more years to go. But the, the, the whole thing is to be able to say something true, to confess something true in grateful response to the Word of God, the scriptural Word of God. So let's... Um... Move on to book 12, which is about creation and kind of contrast between a philosophical account of creation and a, and a Christian account of creation. And I think this is where he really just starts to do scriptural exegesis in the main. And so my big question about Book 12 is just kind of like how to understand it in, uh, on its own. That is to say, why not just, why, why is it its own self standing book? Why not just blow up book 13 <laughs> and have the contrast between the philosophical account and the revealed account there? Because they're, right, they're both kind of scriptural accounts of creation. Book 12 is the problem of the potency act, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And not just the bringing of things out of nothing, but to bring them out in a 
in a flux. And he's also still interested in the beginning before any of that was made. Book, book 12 has a lot to do with the Trinitarian relations themselves, of which he's going to have plenty to say later. Let me give an example. This is in 1215. Okay. Well then, do you deny that there is a kind of sublime creature which cleaves to the true and the truly eternal God with so much chaste love that although it's not co-eternal with him, yet is never detached from him, nor does it flow away from him into any variety and vicissitude of time, but rests in the true and perfect contemplation of him alone. And this is because of you, this is because you, God, show yourself to him who loves you as much as you command, and you are sufficient to him, so that he never falls away from you nor declines toward self. This is the house of God, not of earthly mold nor of heavenly stuff that is material. It's a spiritual house partaking of your eternity because it is for eternity without stain. And thou hast made it fast forever and ever and given it a law that it shall not pass. But it is not co-eternal with you. And what he's trying to work out here is how, how there is a community in the house of the Father that's not just the Trinity, but the angels, the good angels. Mm -hmm. So who and what is in the house of the Father? And you could say the eternal word of the Son you can say the fellowship of the Spirit, but that is not enough because that would just be saying that the house of the Father is simply God. But there is already a community, and it consists of the Trinity and the holy angels. So this is a theme he's going to continue to press through at least two and a half more commentaries of Genesis and De Trinitate, and it becomes the main theme of the city of God. So there is one city of God that is God plus something else. Mm -hmm. God plus citizens who are not God. And that's God plus the angels, the good angels. And that no second city should have ever happened. In other words, Chicago shouldn't have happened. Okay. No second city here. But because of the defection of the bad angels, a second city came, in, came into being. Mm. And what is being played out in history as we know it is two cities. And one to the to pride, lust, and curiosity. Mm -hmm. Although to some good things too. By the <laughs> way, it, it, it is not totally depraved for Augustine. Right. But its end is simply the self. And the beginning of a human participation in the first city, which was the only city intended. 
And the first citizen of that city is Abel. And he finds a lot of other scriptural citizens of it as well, as, as mm-hmm. you read on. But here in Book 12, he's already laying some groundwork for what's going to become almost a preoccupation of his, is to try to understand uh, how different sociolo- socialities evolve in creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just trying to summarize the answer to the question just sort of like well let me just is the answer to the question like what's the upshot of chapter 12 that there are two cities because i don't really think he's using that language in the confessions is he or is it just that it's pointing oh yeah you're going to find that language in the confessions already Mm. Because actually all of 13 is about the calling of a people. Now from the standpoint of redemption. Mm-hmm. And he has to use both the, I mean, the literal and the allegorical, moral, nanagogical to understand different aspects of that sociality, which are, which are already built into Jewish scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how is he how is he understanding Jewish scripture? I mean, he basically thinks it was all written by Moses. Is that is that kind of his view? Well, certainly certainly the first few books of, of scripture. I mean, we also have prophetic books and all kinds of other books. I mean, the reason that I ask is he just keeps talking about how they're written by Moses and no one can question the veracity of anything Moses has said. So is he just talking about the first five books? Yeah, I think he is there because, I mean, even, even Augustine knows that, that the book of Job is, is not written by Moses. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of, I, I was kind of wondering whether or not part of what he's trying to do. And this kind of goes back to something that you said in the first episode, because I asked you, who is this book for? <laughs> like, like, who is he writing this book for? And your answer was elites, right? Elites in all different um, categories of social life um, throughout the empire, including clerics, but also just including really anyone who would have power and would have the capacity to read his Latin. So is he trying to tell them how to read scripture? Is that part of what he's doing here? In the first place, he's telling them, in the confessions anyway, he's telling them why they have to. Because there are things we cannot know without divine revelation. And therefore, we, we are dependent upon uh, the Word of God. Yeah. Okay. So, first, why we must. Mm-hmm. And second, he's, he is using some fairly standard hermeneutics that he learned from St. Ambrose. I mean, he's, he's not inventing these different senses of Scripture. 
and he's trying to get as far as he can get, but the Confessions is just an unusual piece of literature because everything in from book 10 all the way to book 13, he's going to rewrite this stuff over and over again. He's going to rewrite things on the soul. He's going to rewrite things on creation. He's going to rewrite on scripture, mm-hmm. on psalms, on the evolution of cities, mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. But what makes it an unusual piece of literature is that it's not prophetic. He never claims to be prophetic in the strict sense here. This, this is not like the book of Revelation. Right. Nor is it like the life of a saint, which would be like Athanasius's life of Antony. Mm-hmm. Not in that genre either. So it's not in the genre of scripture or holy, pious lives, which were already well developed before Augustine was even born. It's in the first person, and it's a prayer. So what we learn is how Augustine is learning. Mm-hmm. So this is the pious thing. The mm-hmm. pious thing is not like reading the life of Antony of the Desert. The pious thing is learning that Augustine can learn. Right. And yeah. to learn how Augustine learned is to learn both from the lessons of life and the lessons of Scripture. I mean, do you think it's fair to say, I was going to save this question for the end, but whatever. Do you think it's fair to say that this is the first instance of a genre that we might call confessions? There was no previous genre that this is a further instance of, but is kind of a, a new thing. Well, well, we have Marcus Aurelius's meditations. But are those? An, uh, but are those confessions? Yeah, I don't think they're confessions. But he's definitely using his life and to help the reader to understand what he knows to be true. Okay. So on one hand, we have Marcus Aurelius's meditations as having been there for some time. On the other hand, we have Olypius's Transformations of Lucius, another North African, who Augustine actually mentions quite a lot. You have to go to the City of God for most of that. It's a story about a young man in North Af- Roman North Africa who is fooling around with magic and gets turned by a spiritual force into an ass. It's called the golden ass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. mm-hmm. And he is taken as a donkey all around the Mediterranean, observing the life of men and societies. And finally, through the intervention of Isis, is turned back into a person again and becomes a priest of Isis. Although that was never meant to be anything other than figurative and comedic. So the Confessions doesn't quite fit into any of those genres. Right. It, it's not Marcus Aurelius's Meditations or The Golden Ass. 
nor is it a life of a saint, nor is it direct prophecy. It, it, it is not like a book of the Bible. So, very, very interesting, because, you know, I'm not going to say it's the first autobiography, but it's the, in the Christian world, it's bringing things together that have not quite come together this way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do book 13. Because on your interpretation, book 10, 11, and 12 are really leading. <laughs> They're just preparatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, I mean, I don't really know exactly how to lead us into 13. I will simply note that the book begins with Augustine's cry, having a restless heart, his restlessness. And then, of course, we see all of that play out in the autobiographical books. And then finally, at the end, you know, it kind of ends at least gesturing towards that rest, right? That is his happiness or goal or fulfillment. So we, you can see a kind of closure there, but what is he actually trying to accomplish in book 13? He is, he's, he's trying to do, use a method that already exists, hermeneutical method that already exists, to make some sense out of the hexameron, six days, and to make the argument, he, he's not the first to make this argument, nor will he be the last, that we can't start using the allegorical and moral, okay, I should explain those. The allegorical meaning is the meaning built into scripture in which events and persons in Jewish scripture are already signifying the coming of the Christ, mm-hmm. things about the Christ. The moral meaning is how those same things signify something about the actions of the church after Pentecost. And the anagogical are how some things signify Heavenly glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, Augustine, what about the literal, though? Because if he okay, doesn't, literal, because it, because if he doesn't actually think that this happened over six days, what happens to the literal meaning? Well, right in chapter three of book thirteen, he gets to that important point. Here we go. At the beginning of the creation, you said. Let there be light, and there was light. I think I have good reason to take these words as referring to the spiritual creation, for there was already a life of a sort for you to illuminate. But just as it had no claim upon you to be a kind capable of illumination, so when it did exist, it had no claim actually to be illuminated. Its formless state could not please you unless it became light. So here's his argument. We, we can't use the allegorical, moral, and anagogical meanings unless we find a literal meaning. And here he has found a literal meaning. Because the sun does not exist yet, it says, let there be light. And so was that. That was the 
the, the good angels moving from a condition of what could be called evening knowledge. They kind of know themselves, but turning, actually turning to the light and becoming light. Okay, that's the literal meaning. The literal meaning has nothing to do with astronomy. The literal meaning of light, what, what that is signifying here, is the illumination of a creature. Mm. And we could use the term of going from potency to act, being moved from potency to act. Mm. And that is, yeah, that's the literal meaning. Mm -hmm. We should not think of, you know, all kinds of other astronomical spheres in which something is going on. So there is no sense in using the three other modes of interpretation unless you can somewhat reasonably find what can stand as the literal meaning. Mm -hmm. He does it right, right there in chapter 3. We need the literal meaning which may be difficult to discern. Right. It's not so easy, I think. But that's interesting to me because I think most people think that the literal meaning is going to be incredibly plain and obvious and pellucid. And I tend to think of, and this is kind of another way of asking the question about like what, you know, is is he really trying to accomplish in book 13? I tend to think of the, like when, like when I try to think about the confessions as a whole, and I'm not anywhere close to an Augustine scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I think about it in terms of someone coming to realize that the thing that is holding them back from being really happy is a kind of disorder in themselves, right? That they are misdirected in some fundamental sense, but that they're weighed down by disordered loves, right? Whether that's, you know, he has this metaphor of bad habits being these chains or these fetters, but he also has this metaphor of like weight, right? Like I'm being weighed down and prevented from ascending to my proper place, which is with God. And I kind of wondered how that is figuring in these final books. Um, because he does have this very famous passage where he says, you know, my weight is my love. And, and, I think that's, um, oh yeah, this is book 13, chapter. My weight is my love. Wherever I am carried, my love is carrying me. By your gift, we are set on fire and carried upwards. We grow red hot and ascend. We climb the ascents in our heart, sing the song of steps. Lit by your fire, your good fire, we grow red hot and ascend as we move upwards to the peace of Jerusalem. For I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There we will be brought to our place by a good will, so that we want nothing but to stay there forever. 
And so like my first stab in the first episode of the series for like saying what this book was about is that it was about happiness <laughs> and like how you could be happy or to put it in your terms, how you could get home to where you belong. But how does all this stuff about creation like fit into that overall account of getting home by having well-ordered loves and by turning towards God? Mm. Actually, I think it's the last two sentences of the Confessions. Okay. The very end, book 13. Yeah. He says, how can one man teach another man to understand this? What angel will teach an angel? What angel will teach a man? This must instead be asked of you, sought in you, knocked for at you like knocking at the door, let me in. And so it shall be received, and so it shall be found, and so it shall be opened. Amen. So we're learning how he learned. And one of the main lessons he has learned through these last three books is that, well, you have to go to the source. Meaning scripture. Oh, yeah, well, meaning God. Right. Well, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, because your source is your end, actually. Yeah. And so uh. that's what he was learning. In fact, he announced this all the way back in book seven and eight when he said, what did the Platonists fail to teach me? They failed to teach me that the way up is down. And what is the... The proper way down is to stand in front of the door and knock. Right. Yeah. But, right, what you're, what you're asking for is God's grace, God's illumination, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one thing that, um, again, as I was just rereading these final bits, reading it with an eye to thinking about, okay, like, what is he trying to say in a holistic way? I was thinking that this is really, in some sense, just an extended meditation on faith and reason. He never says that. But it is just this constant theme of natural reason being woefully insufficient for not just understanding of God, that's, you know, Maybe obvious, but it but that it's woefully insufficient for understanding yourself. Yeah. You're not going to like have any self knowledge, or m maybe that's too strong. You're not going to have very much self knowledge solely through the use of, let's just say, the natural light of reason. That there is too much darkness there that needs to be illuminated from outside. And, of course, really those last couple of sentences in the Confession summarize the whole thing so well, because if you can be taught by God, why not? <laughs> because I mean, well, that's possible. I mean, that's fair, but I will say that as someone who I think is basically the age that Augustine was writing this, 
I've been on this earth long enough to know that a lot of people don't like being helped. A lot of people, especially men, (laughs) actually, really resist this idea that they're dependent on anyone. And I, so I think it's not so easy, actually, to see your own, yeah, your, your, your own inability, right? Your own lack of the capacity to do this most basic fundamental thing that you need help, right? Which is why, which is why again, this isn't self-help. This isn't a book that tells you how you can help yourself because you just couldn't figure it out. This is a book that tells you you can't help yourself, actually. You, you can't do this on your own. I think that's something that people do not want to hear. A lot of people do not want to hear that. So the first spiritual work of mercy is the relief of ignorance. So the mission of Jesus Christ is, is to teach us. Yeah. And Augustine is presenting himself in the confessions as a, let's put it this way, an interesting student. He's an interesting student, but he finally had to be taught about these first truths, including about himself. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, just going back to book 10 for a second, because I'm obsessed with book 10. I think book 10 is my favorite book in the Confessions, but I am not sure that I totally understand it. You know, we have these meditations on memory, on self-knowledge, on happiness, on the three forms of lust that we've been talking about for all three episodes because they run throughout the confessions. The need for grace and mercy, the unity of faith and reason, the structure of human desire, right? The naming of human happiness as joy and the truth. This role that truth and search for the truth and ultimately possession of the truth plays in the structuring of a well-ordered human life, human soul. How does it all hang together, right? Because a lot of people can get through book 10 and say, well, there's a lot going on here, right? And Augustine has said a lot of really interesting things. But what is the thing holding it all together? The unifying thread here. I, I do think it has to do with education. And you mentioned, I, I think you've just made reference to what is probably chapter 23 of book 10, in which he very strongly states Human, human beings want to know the truth. Mm-hmm. But he, he has this kind of paradoxical line. The human mind of ours, so blind and sick, so foul and ill-favored, 
wants to be hidden itself, but it hates to have anything hidden from it. Yeah. And he builds a kind of the beginning of an argument here about truth. And by the way, in chapter 23, which is a somewhat small chapter in book 10, he uses the word truth 17 times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it wants to know. But it does not want to be known. Not very much. Right. Well, and isn't that because for a certain kind of soul, a soul that has been disordered and disfigured, the truth is actually painful. Like the truth, truth, right? Not a simulacrum of it. Right. But even so, he says, I'm still quoting him from that, doesn't like anything to be hidden from it, he says, it cannot hide from the truth. Even so, wretched as it is, it prefers to find joy in truth than in falsehoods. It will be happy, therefore, when, with no distractions to interpose themselves, it will find its joy in that only truth by which all things are true. So, you know, it's not complete depravity. Right, right, right. right. And that, that's important, obviously, because of certain historical readings <laughs> of Augustine. Okay, let me ask you, this is going to be maybe my final question. We'll see. So, Augustine spends quite a, quite a bit of time in this text critiquing the way that he was educated. That's an interesting critique. Augustine's Confessions is on most lists of kind of great books or masterworks of Western civilization, so that if you're having any kind of quote-unquote classical education, great books education, or whatever you want to call it, you will be reading this book. And this is not necessarily a Christian education the case for Christians to read this book is really obvious. But why is this book a masterwork like for anyone? And what is the value for anyone, Christian or not? The first time I read this book, I was not a Christian. I was very, very deeply struck and changed by reading this book. What, why? Yeah, why, why is this a great book? What is its enduring value for us, for anyone, for a human being? Well, it states what the problem is. I mean, from the very beginning in book one, mm-hmm. and it gives some very vivid considerations of what the problem is. And it takes you inside the problem morally, intellectually, and spiritually. And we see how Augustine was educated. And of course, the, the great scene there in Book 8, in which the, the word that really kind of finally touched him was the babbling of a child. Mm-hmm. Or as tradition has it, message of an angel. 
And at the very end, he's still knocking. Boom, boom. So it, it, it's a very complex and beautiful understanding of the problem of being educated by other human beings mm-hmm. and, and the problem of you yourself doing some major damage on people in the way you're teaching. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can learn all these things from reading the Confessions. Yeah, I think you can. I mean, I sort of felt like as a very young person, I I guess I was 18. No, I was 18 when I read this book. I definitely felt at the end of it like it was a window into myself in a way that nothing I had read before was. And I've thought a lot about why that is. And I really think it's not because of this or that true thing that he says. He says a lot of true things. Aristotle says a lot of true things. Plato says a lot of true things. It wasn't the first time I had encountered someone saying true things. I think it was a way that he was saying it, right? This isn't, this isn't, this isn't a philosophical dialogue. It's not a philosophical treatise. It's not a set of lecture notes. It's more like, the story of himself, it's told in such a brutally honest way. He, I don't know if he's actually holding back, but like I was very struck, like, wow, he just said that. <laughs> and he's so um, self-critical in a way that what wasn't, wasn't weird and self-indulgent, but that was actually enlightening in some way and I had this sense you know when I was reading it for the first time and really every time I read it I love this book obviously is it's like a familiarity <laughs> like like some kind of uncanny familiarity that's so strange because he's living in a very different world than I was or am or ever will and and quite frankly, you know, has in so many ways a very different perspective than me because of that. But I had never read anything that felt more familiar to me, right? And and it just really, you know, I I finished it and I just I just wanted to read it again. You know, when you read like a really great book and you're just sad when it's <laughs> when it's over. That's the way that I felt with this, you know, and I could be familiar with that feeling from reading a great novel. It's not necessarily the feeling I get reading philosophy. And I think that really speaks to what's so different about this book and what's so powerful about it. There's, there's something really unique about the confessions, which is why I'm so obsessed with the question of genre. Anyway, uh, final thoughts, Russ. I don't want to take the final thoughts. I'll let you well, have the last word. It's probably more powerful now than when he wrote it. it Why do you say to, that? Because um, by the late 4th century, early 5th, we're beginning to 
be in Christian times and in, in a way in a Christian world. And there are many sources, and as, and as we go into the Middle Ages even more, because Christian Middle Ages in Europe was a, a community that until the 13th century that was sort of deeply Christian, but kind of just tuned into itself. Whereas the Confessions, I think, has its most power where someone knows that they are the prodigal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, that was probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably every soul that picks it up. And we've got, I mean, prodigality is a, is it, as a, as it were, a kind of weird virtue of modern times. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, Russ, this was really wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me for three full episodes and for sharing all that you know about this book. I'm super grateful. Okay. Godspeed to Tulsa. <laughs> yeah, I'm making my way. Rome first, then Tulsa. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast. Special thanks, as always, goes to Joe Coleman and Bea Quasi for their work in editing and producing this podcast. This has been the final episode of the season. We will begin releasing new episodes of the podcast in August. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.